Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the England Rugby Podcast of O2 Inside Line. I'm Hugo Monnier and this week we've got a real treat for you. Usually we sit down with members of the England squad to get to know more about the guys wearing the red rose. But this time we speak to the man who inspired quite a few, you've got to say, of the current England rugby players to pick up the ball in the first place. This week's guest is completely synonymous with English rugby, a true legend of our game and one of the most intriguing sporting icons. It was this massive thing. It was my massive passion was playing rugby and I wanted to be as good as I could be. That's one side of it. The other side of it was that, like I said, that desire to... I wanted to make sure that the future was going to be the way that I wanted it. Yes, I get the pleasure of sitting down with England's all-time point scorer. It's Johnny Wilkinson. I had nothing else. Oh, do you know, when I look back, people were saying, what are you going to sing? I was like, I don't know any songs. I was in that state of sheer panic. Instead of just sit back and thinking, do you know what, why don't I just go for it? As it was, I, I put my eyes to the floor and hummed the hymn out. In this exclusive interview with Johnny, we discussed some of the defining moments of his career. All of a sudden I looked up and just saw the ball pretty much between the sticks. And at that point I clicked back in. It's almost like I hopped back into the experience and sort of went, my God, I've done it. As well as his battle with himself to be the best. I was reinventing myself as perfect every morning and then worried about losing it. And everything else in between. I'd then have massive competitions in my head as I, as I was doing sessions where I'd be scoring left versus right. And I'd have this like narrative going on, this conversation in my head of, of the left foot talking to the right, like giving it trash talk, being like, you know, what's happening? I'm so excited for you to hear this, so let's get straight into it. This is the Inside Line on Johnny Wilkinson. Johnny, thanks for joining us on this podcast. Um, good to have you along. Um, I kind of want to delve into your upbringing, what you were like as a kid, all those kind of things, and really kind of methodically just go through your life as a rugby right. player. Okay. Inside and out. Sounds good. Are you happy yeah. to go there with me? Of course. Okay. Um, so what were you like as a kid growing up? Obsessive. Really obsessive. Um, About everything? Yeah. Everything. Inquisitive. And I guess the obsession was, was kind of perfectionist as well. I think when I was, when I was younger, I... I I was always looking for answers to certain things that other people were passing off as don't go there because there is no answer. I was, I needed an answer, you know, so that was the unknown of the future. I had to know what that was. I had to what age that. was this? Young. We're talking sort of, yeah, as, as much as sort of six, seven onwards. So things like, you know, going deeper into things where most people kind of like, oh, you, well, everyone dies. I was kind of like, I don't like that. I need to work out the answer. And so at that age, I came up with a, a certain understanding of life that whereby your basic answer to everything, every potential issue or danger was being, in a way, perfect. And that translated to winning, to doing well. To, and then I came up with certain phrases like never letting anyone down. So these became hard and fast rules, which became a possession for me. On the flip side, I had a ridiculous passion for all things active, all things ball sports. Anytime there was a sport involved on TV, I'd be outside playing that sport within like half an hour. So I had the garage was full of things like snooker tables, <laughs> roller boots. Do you know what I mean? Anything that I saw on TV, they were next. I had them when I was out on the road, outside the house, just doing whatever I could do to, to that sport. So I played everything. And when I played it, I played it seriously. Yeah. It wasn't the whole kind of, let's just have a knockabout. Um, and uh, so I went, I went full on into everything, and that was the way I was, and that crept into things like school. You know, I, I wasn't necessarily into my ac- academia stuff, but at the same time, when a test came around, it was like 
I had to be at the top and I had to, to basically sort of get it right. How does a kid age six or seven have that kind of mindset of wanting to perfect everything, an obsession of asking questions, that kind of inquisitive mind? How do you develop that? Is that because of having a brother? Was that your mother and father? Or was that just something that was just completely innate in you? I, I, don't, I think it might have been a sort of, if you like, predisposed inclination that that came with with me at that time I don't think it was it was it was mine I think it was just it was in me something that I've since understood it was mine to dissolve if you will but it was it was running quite hard so as all the information came in about life and everything I was churning it and modeling it into this same pattern each time which was just I love it and I love exploring how good I can be but on the flip side you have to win and you have to do it well and so this is I'm not going to jump ahead too much but it's almost this is the I guess the kind of battle that a lot of people face in professional sport is on the one hand you've got this desire to explore everything you're capable of but on the other hand you've got this desire to control everything to make sure that nothing goes wrong and that you've got your your reputation intact as it were so you're always desperate to go and find out how good you can be but on the other hand you're trying to hold back and be like yeah but let's make sure yeah, we don't lose, or, or I hope we. I hope I still do well, and I hope I'm still respected and re- recognised, and all this rubbish. And I guess that was the beginning of it. I had this. I just wanted to play sport all the time, but then whenever it came to, right now we're going to play a game. I almost didn't want to do it. So you know, I was young. I was, used to go out to rugby games when I was ten years old, and I'd be sick in the car. I'd be crying my eyes out before the game. And yet, rugby was the biggest sport I loved. I absolutely loved rugby. I loved the game, and yet. When it came to playing a game, an actual real game where things were going to count, scorelines were going to matter, I didn't want to go through with it because in a way it was a no-win situation because I couldn't be perfect and I knew that, but at the same time I had to be. So you're going out there thinking, I'm, it's that fine line where you know that nothing's perfect and, and what I never was able to do was reflect on after each game you kind of realise that I'm all right, I actually enjoyed it. Yeah, it was like going to school, you kind of every morning I'd be the kid saying, I don't want to go, I don't want to go and at the end of the day my mum would say, how was it? I'd be like had a good day and yeah. she'd be like so we're not going to have that tomorrow morning are we we're like yeah oh, it's going to be good next morning i wake up and just be in the same state you know it's like i was reinventing myself as perfect every morning and then worried about losing it instead of realizing that from day one nothing's perfect did you feel slightly different then as a six seven year old where i'd say a lot of your friends were probably obsessing over thomas the tank engine <laughs> and trying to make sure that their color and in books were, were perfect where you were trying to figure out the meaning of life did you feel like you were just different and had a mindset? Were you aware of it? I, I guess I was doing that through those same activities. Okay. You know I mean? So the way I approached everything I did was part of that. But I guess I was—I found myself at times looking at people around me and thinking, how can you be so happy, carefree? Because okay. almost like, don't you understand what I understand? Yeah, and maybe sometimes I felt that in changing rooms before games, you'd be looking at some people being like, how can you be like that? Do you know what I mean? Like, what, what, do you, do you realise that there's a game on and this is judgment day and if you don't win, you know, whatever, and if you don't do this, but then I think they were looking around to me and being like, just relax a little bit. But it was, my brother was like that. My brother was, especially when we were younger, he was able to pick things up and give it everything and then put it down and leave it. I just couldn't leave it. So how did you kind of balance each other out were there opportunities and conversations whereby he could see that you were perhaps stressing over things that you wanted to control that you couldn't control and then you saw your brother on the other hand going very just being very relaxed about it did that frustrate you to but this extent? is the this is the joy of the the journey I've I've had is that it's it doesn't work unless you're conscious of how 
So I wanted loads of what he had, and I think he had wanted some of what I had in terms of that ability to just drop everything and go hard out and just go to the end, no matter what. But if you don't know how you're doing that, what can you give? So I looked at him and went, how can you be so chill out? And his answer was, I don't know, I just am. Yeah, and he was okay. like, well, how can you be so intense and, and just have that never give up spirit no matter what? And I'd be like, I don't know, it's just how I am. Yeah. And the journey is, is that since then I've sort of gone deeper into me rather than all this other stuff. And now you're like, oh, I, I sort of understand. So now I can play with that, which is what I could never do. So, you know, I, I was... I spent my life in England games and you know, there's a lot of them where before games I was walking around hotels phoning important people in family or whatever and close friends or Blackie or these guys I'd phone them and just saying I can't do this this is like just before kickoff, and I was in my head almost starting to have ideas about what I could tell the coach you know like maybe I could just tell him that mentally I'm, I'm not right and he has to pull me out of the game this is having phone calls in, in hotel and this is alongside you know when you're in the team as well you're kind of there being like didn't have a clue at the time well, of course <laughs> yeah exactly but but this is the thing is it yeah. is that was that harder actually than trying to mask it because by nature as a fly half you're in control of everything we're looking to you Johnny what are we doing off this line out defence kickoffs restarts every, everything like that but in your internally you're having doubts as to whether you can apply it but then the whole team's looking at you for that kind of calmness and reassurance yeah, it, you have a situation that comes which is which is again is an understanding that I've I've come to now is that my life was the anxiety was just about trying to be trying to live in the future it's all right to plan for the future but yeah. I was trying to live in the future and the thing is is what I've realized since is that where I am now who I am now is perfectly equipped for now but if I try and live in the future I get anxious if I try and live in the past I get regretful if you just accept that in the future, that future me will be equally equipped to deal with whatever comes. So that's my ability to let go and just be me now. Yeah. Because everyone says it. Everyone says, oh, I was, I was really sort of in trouble before kickoff. It's worrying. But when the whistle went, I was fine. It's like, well, of course, because that you is supposed to be there. So when you're in the change room, be in the change room. Now, that never happened to me. I could not be... I had to, in the game, you know, and people talk about visualisation, but when it stops being preparation and becomes trying to be there ahead of time okay you get massive anxieties all you can think about is what if this happens what if that happens but it's like well hold on you're not equipped for that but whoever the version of you that's there on the field will be which is why on the field you have guys stepping at you and running at you and you just decide i'm going to make the tackle whereas when you're watching it as a sub on the sideline you're going oh my god yeah i don't want to get on that. i can't handle that (laughs) but it's because it's not your job yeah you're not equipped to deal with that. Who yeah. you are is supposed to be in that substitute, enjoying being a sub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but this kind of thing for me never occurred because you're always trying to, you're trying to control, you want to know the answer before you get there. But if you did know the answer, how long would you choose to keep playing for if you always knew how things were going to turn out? Yeah. Hi, this is Dan Cole and you're listening to the England Rugby Podcast with O2 Inside Line. So, Johnny Wilkinson now goes back 15 years ago into a Twickenham changing room to speak to Johnny Wilkinson, who's about to run out in front of eight, 2,000 people. You walk in, you see Johnny on the phone. What would you say to him? I would speak a little bit through this. I would speak through his language, not mine, and his ideas, not mine, and speak through his passions, not mine, and his fears, and just get to the point of understanding the biggest thing in sport for me is that the only thing that matters is your performance. That's what creates everything around you, is how you perform, how you are on the inside, yeah. and what you do with 
what you're with your capacities and, and therefore anything that's not to do with performance or doesn't improve performance or add to performance therefore is largely irrelevant okay. so the thought of what happens if or what happens if this goes wrong is an irrelevant thought and without that thought there's no such thing as pressure or fear so when people talk about there being pressure and fear it's like but without the thought of what happens if it goes wrong where's pressure where's fear so you automatically give someone who's saying, I'm all about seeing how good I can be. You're like, well, prove it. Prove it and let go. Because any other thought of trying to control the future stops you exploring it. And if you don't explore, how are you ever going to find something you haven't already got? And if you want to be as good as you can be, so you put someone on the line and say, how serious are you? How much do you want this? Because the only answer is, be all you can be now, enjoy the hell out of your life, yeah. and explore like mad. And someone goes, wait, hold on, the answer is, basically enjoy myself. Yeah. And what will that bring with your best performance? Okay. And then you kind of go, right, well, hold on, you're telling me that if I'm serious, I've got to enjoy myself and I've got to let go of the future. And now okay. suddenly you've got a reason to go there. Yeah. Whereas most of the time you say to someone, I know there's pressure and fear, but just try and be like this. You're like, but when you're enjoying yourself on the field in the middle of it, you're still in the same situation. There's still a scoreline of 20 each and there's still three minutes to go. But when you're in the middle of the action, if you could stop yourself and speak to yourself and say, do you feel pressure? You're like, No absolute engagement in life 100% engagement in life which is being in the zone there's no such thing as pressure or anything it's only when you stop and start trying to think about how things turn out you get pressure and why would you think about how things turn out it's got nothing to do with your performance okay so living in the now affecting but having but having a reason to live in the now because you read it a lot people say just live in the now so everyone walks around trying to smell roses and I'd stop a bit and go, look how amazing the blue sky is, and I'm living in the now, but everyone's going, oh, you try and smile on the rugby field. How weird does it feel when you walk around going... <laughs> but that's what it is. Like People say that, so people start walking around before kickoff, going, I'm having a great time. Yeah. Like, joy, for me, is just being fully engaged where you are now. So looking at someone who's joyful, it doesn't necessarily, they'll be, doesn't necessarily mean they'll be full of smiles. Yeah. Look at someone who's truly joyful, you'll see someone who's deeply engaged in life not deeply engaged in trying to smile or yeah. smell things. And I'd go on a reasoning of logic. As a kid, I was, I was, or a younger guy, I loved, if it logically made sense, I'd commit my life to it. And so I, I now have a different logic to the logic I had at that time, which was I've got to stress and suffer more than everyone else because that gives me the right to deserve to win. However, I have no enjoyment in what I'm doing and I'm getting less and less of a player. And as I'm getting older, I'm getting more and more protective and less and less capable and I'm finding things harder and harder. It's like, yeah, but ignore that. Keep stressing, keep suffering, and, and at the end of it, it will turn out in joy. And you look at any retired rugby player and say, so did it all work? They're walking around and being like, no, I'm still stressing and suffering. So it does become a case of like, it's now or never. Okay. Love that. Absolutely love that. And it's great that you've been able to work that out for yourself in terms of what it means to you now. But I guess we'd all probably do things slightly different knowing what we kind of know now. Let's talk about you at school. Um, so we spoke about you, age six, all the way through to ten. Then you ended up at Lord Wandsworth College, place I know well. Went to the same school in the same boarding house. But, I mean, I'm, I'm a few years younger than you. But for me as a younger kid, observing, and Lord Wandsworth College was the place where I found a love for rugby. So when you were in the first team, actually, younger than that. So when you were age 16, and I spoke about kids being obsessed with Thomas the Tank Engine, I was messing around with my mates at lunchtime after school and I remember you in with your dad goal kicking for hours and I didn't really get it then I was just like 
it's cool. It's cool what you're doing. You know, you're doing something you really enjoy. But age 16 with your dad, whilst everyone else is doing what they're doing, why did you feel that's exactly what you wanted to commit to? Why did you want to continue doing those things? We had to hide behind the hedge to do that. You weren't supposed to see us. My dad wasn't allowed in the grounds. And I wasn't supposed to be kicking at that oh, time right. during the day. Which However, exposed to that. <laughs> yeah. However, because it was this massive thing. It was my massive passion was playing rugby and I wanted to be as good as I could be. Yeah. That's one side of it. The other side of it was that, like I said, that desire to... I wanted to make sure that the future was going to be the way that I wanted it. So that was my way of doing it. And your way of controlling that was Which by just, just ridiculous preparation. Yeah. But the thing is, though, is that I stepped over the line of performance. I was knackered at times. I mean, not so much at 16 because you're full of, yeah. you've much more vibrant. But when I was older, I was knackered at times at game time. But I was willing to say, I'll go out there physically overcooked. Yeah. But at least I know that I can, I'll get things right. Okay. But you're kind of like versus some guys. As a sprinter, if you went out onto the track, you'd be like, what are you doing? Yeah. It's about freshness. It's about having that bounce and that energy. Whereas to me, that was like, that's pointless. I have to know. So I already started that process then. And I was treading the line. I loved it, however. The, the, that age, just kicking a ball was like being at the, at the beach or on holiday for some people. If I had a ball in my hands, I was just, the world made sense. Yeah. And I was still loving that. And I was still in that age where up until match time, I was nowhere else I'd rather be. And if I could do it then, when I was supposed to be doing something else, I'd do it then. <laughs> and my, uh, my dad was, yeah, was amazing like that. And that he, would, he would sort of say, yeah, I'll come into a place I'm not supposed to be in. <laughs> and, uh, and sort of stand there and just kick balls back to you. You know, he'd played rugby, he had a bad knee anyway, so the poor guy was there for hours. Plus, also, him and my brother both copped the uh, the attitude that I came to, which was at the end of sessions when it wasn't going as I wanted. I was There was times when I said to my brother, who'd been there for an hour and a half, when he was supposed to be there for 45 minutes, and, he, and he's seeing me go down that wall of being like, it's not good enough. And then he hears me say, right, that's it, I'm starting again. And he can see his eyes go... You're doing what? You're starting the whole session again. I'm like, yeah, another hour and a half I have to. And he's going, but I'm supposed to be giving you a lift home. Yeah. It's like you're, you're roping me into this. And sure enough, he'd, you know, he'd chat it through and we'd end up, it wouldn't be that. But both of them took so much, and my mum as well, took so much of that attitude of just when things weren't right, it was like, right, I've got to, you know, it wasn't, wasn't good enough for me to have an average session and then find the answer at the end it was like no it has to be so if I've done a session it's not right I'm going to start again build it but kick by pick so I can kick by kick and go home and, and be happy so yeah he, he kind of uh, had to deal with a hell of a lot but he helped me sort of you know, find the positive parts of what I was doing and, and they became yeah quite crucial I remember one afternoon actually I've got to say Sutton House we had a lovely field outside yeah. and it wasn't just kicking you were good at because I remember like watching you as a younger fella watching the first team play just in front of schoolhouse on that rugby pitch and there was it was probably just before we were doing prep where you were confident in your tackling you weren't the biggest lad at school right, were yeah, you yeah. Uh, do you remember Doug Cooper <laughs> He's a, he's a big unit, I think he's probably in your year. Um, he played in the first year, I think he was a number eight, and we're playing British Bulldog, and you were in the middle. Right. <laughs> and you were like, right, I bet, I, I dare anyone, I, I promise you, you, you won't be able to beat me <laughs> defensively. And so even though you were a shy pupil, you were obviously very confident yeah. in your ability because of all the hard work yeah. that you did. Yeah. Um, in terms of rounding off all your skills, you became pretty much ambidextrous good tackler why was that so important to you I mean it's an obvious question but why was it so important for you to learn to kick left foot right foot left hand right hand tackle do everything 
which is now kind of expected of a yeah, professional a player, which wasn't back then. It made perfect sense to me. I, was, I remember being about sort of six, seven years old in the garden and I'd kick a ball with my left foot and I'd look and think, well, I'll just do it now with my other foot. And I'd look at what I do with my left and I'd do it with my right. And it wasn't so much... Yeah, so it wasn't so much a case of saying, oh, well, this will help me in games because I'll be able to kill. It was literally a case of like, but why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't you? Do you know, I've got time. I love kicking a ball. It's like, I can do it with this foot. I wonder if I can do it with that foot. That was that curiosity and that in- inquisitive yeah. side. That, And then, then I'll get to a stage where I do it a little bit now with some of the guys we coach with. I'll be like, right. I'd then have massive competitions in my head as I, as I was doing sessions where I'd be scoring left versus right. And I'd have this like narrative going on, this conversation in my head of, of the left foot talking to the right, like giving it trash talk. <laughs> Being like, you know, what's happening? Yeah, you're this, you're that. And it's like out the right. And the right coming back and giving it the old big, you know, the, the whatever. And I'd be walking around the field and I'd be sort of, and then I'd join in. I'd be kind of like, oh, you know, like talking to them about like, who's winning and that's going to so I'd, And then the tackling side, the tackling was just the sheer part of that perfectionist determination, which was just like, I can't lose. In a global sense, it was my career has to go this way. In a smaller sense, it was we have to win this game. In a personal sense, on the field, it was I have to win every action. And then when it came to tackling, it's like, how dare you think you can run at me and try and fall that way? And that was what it was. Like I said, that moment, every moment was a competition of saying, do I win or do I lose? Okay. And, and I so actually, you didn't just want to complete a tackle? No, it had to be the biggest thing you've ever seen. And, and then the issue was with that was that it then became part of my letting people down was like just a normal tackle wasn't good enough it had to be all of me or nothing at all okay so i'd then be there's games i think on the 2005 lions tour when we're playing against new zealand in the first and second test and yeah you've got big guys running and they're they're they're, i'm more sort of our defense we're all over the place so they've got an edge and they've got space on the outside and inside and i'm still trying to massive hit the guys just purely because i'm thinking we're losing and we're not going to get anywhere i have to make an impact and so all the time, my neck and shoulders are getting just torn apart. And I'm going for these hits that I think are going to change the world. And of course, the only thing they change is my <laughs> medical history. <laughs> How long did that take for you to be able to process that mindset, to understand that all the practice, the obsession, wanting to perfect things could manifest itself in enjoyment and for that to ha- have some kind of momentum? It, it took me 30 years to get a to get a strong enough grip on it and it's taken me to today and beyond to to turn it inside out so by that I understand that what you're looking at there is two opposing forces a desire to expand and explore and a desire to control and protect okay so there is no fine line there what you need to do is is you choose one or the other and in a way as the phrase goes to me the only way to truly control everything is to fully let go and that's kind of, it's a tough thing to do. But what I realised for me is that when you're in the middle of the action on a rugby field, right in the centre of the action, everyone talks about being in the zone where they're in that space. And it's because it is the space of no thought. And so that was my route. My route from, yeah, what I haven't mentioned this is that you can see where this journey would be leading or this view of life is it's heading down a dark alley where it will break. And that's what happened to me numerous times in my life. I had that mental health system where you're left with no way out because... If you're desperate to be perfect, but something's happened that's not right, you're stuck with it. You're almost feeling like, well, what's the point? I can't change the past. I can't control the future. And then for someone that has to do both of those, you're stuck. And that's, so that's where it was heading. And thankfully, it happened to me early enough for me to then 
turn that obsession inwards and go for that ultimate space, which is to live every moment the same as you experience that moment on the field where everything makes sense. You know, I, I guess you would have been there as well, where you're kind of in a space where you're like, I don't know if, if I knew that ball was coming to me or, or if I called for it or if I, I knew the defender was going to do that or did I make him do it? I own the pitch, I own the ball, I own the defenders, I own my own team. I just own yeah. this space. Instead of when you're thinking a lot, where you feel like there's you and that space outside, which is just full of things that are threatening you and that confuse you and you can't understand, is that space where you let it all go and you just, the bigger picture connects and it makes sense. And now I used to get minuscule moments of those every weekend and I would stress and suffer my heart out for the rest of the week thinking that that was creating that moment which is ridiculous the idea that stressing and suffering will create joy yeah. or that you're going to find that now moment in the future it's ludicrous Hi this is Jonathan Joseph and you're listening to the England Rugby Podcast with O2 Inside Line Johnny, so we spoke a lot about your childhood, um, you at school, the behaviours that you adopted back then, but I guess all of it paid off when you finally got to, I guess, fulfil a, a long life dream and play for England. Do you remember what your debut was like? Yeah, I do. I do. I was warming up on the, in the in-goal area and England were playing Ireland. I'd been on the bench before against Scotland the week before, but I hadn't come on. And this time, uh, that was up in Murrayfield, and this time we're at Twickenham and players were going down left, right and centre. And uh, Mike Cat pulled a hamstring. And so I got the call. Uh, and it was basically a case of who's going to go on now. At that point, Mike Cat was playing on the wing. So I was, I was looking, thinking, I'm all for playing for England. But, and uh, so I got put on the wing of all places. My one and only appearance on the, on the wing. And uh, I, I ran on with five minutes to play. The first thing they did, Ireland did, was put a, um, a box kick up on me, yeah. which was too long. Everyone sort of was like, oh, what a great catch, your first catch. But ultimately, it was too long anyway. Okay. I jumped up to take it. Neil Back, being as protective as he was of all his number 10s, ran a massive obstruction line on their chase, which meant no one was getting near me, but we gave a penalty away. And oh, after gosh. that, like we said, five minutes passed like that. Next thing you know, you're, you're, you're sort of in the aftermatch function, um, worrying about your first song. What was your first song? I sang a hymn. All things bright and beautiful, which, which to be fair, is now we speak like this is a, is a lovely thought, but at the time it went down terribly. And uh, I, I, uh, I, looking back, I wish I would have pulled out, you know, like a big number and gone for it, but I didn't. Who was your captain that day? Uh, it might have been Lawrence, I think. Okay, so you got the likes of Lawrence, I'd imagine Jason Leonard, uh, G- Gus Scott. So you got all that. Robert, all these guys. You decided yeah. to sing a hymn. I had nothing else. Oh, do you know when I look back, I, I had my entire. <laughs> childhood i spent listening to my dad's 60s 70s collections i had all the beatles numbers i had all these things like i had them down pat i knew all the lyrics and i loved the songs and everything but when people were saying what are you going to sing i was like i don't know any songs looking back it's like i knew all of them yeah i just i was in that state of sheer panic instead of just sitting back and thinking you know what like we're saying before why don't i just go for it yeah yeah. young 18 year old nothing to lose just (laughs) sing your heart who cares if it's if it's in tune as it was i i put my eyes to the floor and hum the uh, the hymn out yeah, yeah. Sure missed down. opportunity yeah sure that went down really well um <laughs> but that was the start of uh, obviously a long and successful career which all culminated really in 2003 um what was it like in the build-up to to 03 you were the number one team in the world huge amount of expectation not just from everyone back home but from around the world it was the time where this crop of talent had to deliver i think we'd We'd been building to it for a while because we'd been playing, I feel, some good rugby throughout 99 onwards. And in that Five Nations of 99, we had a great 
campaign and then lost it to Wales at Wembley in the last minute. Following year, we went all the way and then lost it to Scotland, Murrayfield in the rain. Next year, we had the delayed game with the foot and mouth with Ireland, ended up playing that in October. Lost the grand slam there. So then France the following year. So we had all these kind of nearly sort of close but no cigar moments. And then then it started to just hit. I think all those lessons were, were there for a reason. We had to learn how to win in all conditions, in all situations, um, with all teams and whatever. And 2003, and, and I guess 2000, the end of 2002 became that, that moment. You know, we had the, the autumn run going in where we, we beat all the Southern Hemisphere teams, followed now through the Six Nations where we had the Grand Slam. And then we went on tour where we had Australia away, New Zealand away. And even those games, we just felt like we were, we were there. And... and from a mental perspective, we were absolutely there, sort of like, I guess, in the summer of 2003, we were absolutely flying. And I guess, sort of pertaining back to what we were speaking about before, it's quite interesting that I think we went into that tour that summer with this feeling of being like, let's see how, how good we can be and what we can do to the opposition. When we got to the World Cup, I think we allowed ourselves to get into that idea slightly, albeit no one, would, I think, would have been conscious of it or admitted it, that you felt like because of all the talk our hands were already on the trophy all we had to do was keep them there okay. for six weeks and I think you saw that in the performances even even South Africa in the group game we won it with a few points to spare but it was tense and it was edgy Samoa we ran around chasing shadows um, and then when we got to Wales in the quarter final I think it just blew apart you know it all became evident we got tight as a team decision making was disjointed um, we were Ball chasing everywhere. We were we weren't cohesive. We weren't on the same wavelength. We weren't exploring. weren't challenging ourselves at all. We got away after a good half time sort of discussion and, and a an upbeat kind of second half performance. We we escaped that that big potential you know, end of our tournament. And and then after that, I think we just had enough energy to say, look, guys, let's let's be real. We spent all year trying to see how good we can be. Let's do it for two more games. And as it was, we 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 came strong against France and. That final looked after itself, I think. It certainly did. Let's talk about that final and that moment which you were central to. What's your recollection of it? What was your thought process? What what were the things that were going through your mind as everything was kind of unravelling in in that high-stakes pressure moment? Watching it happen, it was exactly that difference of of being out the game as a decision maker when you're kind of you need to be looking around to make decisions but being in it when you're involved so we went off the back of the line out at the end of the game having watched Australia just knock the ball over again the beautiful thing for me was there was a huge acceptance within the team that if he gets it we'll just do whatever we do next don't worry about it there was this feeling and when the ball went over there wasn't guys going oh my god you know he's done it again and what's going to happen now it was literally just the guys just went right halfway let's go we knew what we were about to do. Everyone was calling the, the routine of understanding. Long kickoff, get us into them to kick it off, get a, a line-out, 10-yard line will do. Off we go, ball to the back of the line-out, Mike Cat up the middle, which is, like I said, suddenly all this thought turns into just, you know, now you're part of that, you're a connection in that link. Mike Cat ran the ball up to a place they knew it was coming. Yeah. I mean, it was like a, it was a hospital ball. <laughs> and yet, we were both looking at each other being like, there's no other way. <laughs> You've got to go. So he's kind of, he's bracing his ribs as he runs in, yeah. gets the ball back. And then immediately I'm into that space of looking, thinking, right, are we going to get much more than this? Am I going to be looking to hit a 45-yard drop goal? And as I'm looking at that, as am I, going to, am I going to do it? How many times are we going to try and work the forwards before it comes sticky and they're all yeah. charging me? Dorse makes that break. Brilliant. A great break, yeah. It's a great mindset to understand that, you know, they're probably thinking drop goals, so they're on their heels, or on their toes. He then, off he goes, gets us into the 22. And at that point, it's all changing in you know, the mindsets now. I'm still thinking we've got to attack like we're going to score. 
yeah, that's what sets a drop goal up more than anything is that the phase before is, is interested in scoring, not a kind of, I'll do this so you can hit a drop goal. It's like, no, I'll do this so I can score. Oh, yeah. now you hit a drop goal. The boys take it out. Martin Johnson makes a great decision to go again. Because Matt Dawson was on the deck because yeah, he'd right, made yeah. that break. Yeah. So Jono, in that moment... Decided that... But, I mean, back he could pass. Yeah. But at the same time, you're like, it's still a bit wet, greasy night in Australia. <laughs> like, at this point, why don't you throw a short one to me? Yeah. Jono just sort of waded is the best verb, I think, for that. He waded into some players <laughs> and then set the ball back. He's a guy you were never going to turn him over because his arms were so long. Yeah. If he got a good placement, you know, you have to dive just to get near the ball. Yeah. And at that point, Dorse then did the, the, the classic of just, he just started to go on the pass just to bring them yeah. in again. And as they, as they gave it the whole, we can't afford to give a penalty, I went back, gave me a bit of time on my right foot and... and on that, sorry to interrupt, why did you set on your right foot? Because you're a natural left, right? Natural left. Natural but, left, correct, not right. But I, yes, right, but I have, I have had periods in my life where I would have chosen my right foot on okay. drop goals, just where I'm, you know, just not because I don't think I'm going to get on my left, just because it, it feels right. It just feels right. And, but on that side, I was on the left-hand side of the field, so that puts my right foot further away from the defence on the drop goal. It also straightens the angle for me a bit. So... Dorse gave it to me on that side and as I as I dropped the ball I almost we talk about being in the moment I was so in the moment that I wasn't even there this is strange thing is that when people say what does it feel like I'm like I, I can't have it I don't have that memory what I have is a is a memory of of just seeing the ball drop seeing it tilt slightly in and forward which for me was going to mean it's not going to go a long way but it'll be very very straight yeah and it dropped right in the slot and I just remember seeing my own leg hit and I remember sort of a sensation and then all of a sudden I looked up and just saw the ball pretty much between the sticks and at that point I clicked back in it's almost like I hopped back into the experience and sort of went my god we've done it which is why my celebration is half-hearted because I'm almost <laughs> like I wasn't even there for that I was like I was on the sofa with a popcorn being yeah. like this is great and then ran back and the first thing in my mind was geez these guys have come back twice already yeah yeah if any team can yeah they're going to do what we just tried to do to them so get on your toes let's get this done they kicked the short kick off and Trevor Woodman snatched it and when he yeah. caught that my god that's you can see the whole team just went that's probably it and Dawes went to pass to me and I was giving it the old give it to Catty yeah. I've had enough I've done my bit yeah, they're all chasing me give it to Catty no one hits a better ball into touch than him and he smashed it over the line yeah. and, and I remember thinking in my whole life ever since has been when it was just on its way over the line and the ref was in his pocket for his whistle that's the moment you stop once that goes over you go over the top of the hill and come down. And it's the beautiful thing about being on the verge of something is so much better than having it or going past having it. And that's been a massive, massive thing I've explored in my life of why that feeling, why does it feel like that? And it's been a huge eye-opener. But that, for me, was the moment. If you say, what, what moment would I save? It was that. The ball's on its way out and the rest going to his whistle. Now, it leaves you with that space of but I want to know what it's like to win a World Cup, but I did find out what that was like, and it was nowhere near as good as that moment. Wow. Um, in that moment, did you fully allow yourself just to let it all go and enjoy it? I think this is what that exploration has led me to. It's, it's a bit like getting very materialistic now, and I don't want to. It's a bit like if you were in a car showroom, and you know that in your pocket you've got enough money to buy any of the cars. doesn't matter which one, you can afford any of them. So you're walking around with that feeling of being like, oh my God, you sit in one, you're like, oh, I could have this if I want, and you sit in another. But then you buy the one you want, and you sit in it. 
Now that feeling of sitting in it, now you've got it, is nowhere near as good as walking around the showroom. And that's the thing about having something. And that's the journey, the, 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 the on your way rather than the destination. That moment for me represented, and that's what I do now with my choice of how I see myself, is I don't arrive at any ideas. When you don't arrive at any ideas, the next moment is always that, oh, who knows? Yeah. But once you get there, it's like Christmas and Christmas Eve, it's like night before your yeah. birthday, it's like yeah. your first day of your holiday, whatever yeah. it is, it's always that thing. And it is a fabulous thing, it's an amazing thing. But it's nowhere near when you're just on your way there. So that's the thing about the World Cup afterwards. It was like, well, where next? And the, the thing is, is when you finish your rugby career, the big question is, where next? And, and if you're tied down to it, it has to be rugby, everything will feel like, oh. But the thing is, is what I've realised is that playing that rugby for me is about trying to see what you can be. Now, why does that have to be limited to a rugby film? So there you have it, the inside line on one of the biggest names in sport, Johnny Wilkinson. We could have gone on and on and on. This guy has got an incredible story to tell. And it was a real privilege to sit down with him like that and get to know more about his journey and the fascinating insight he's gained over the years. I really hope you enjoyed listening to it and please do leave us a review and let us know what you made of this special episode. And if it's the first time you've joined us on the pod, please make sure you go back and listen to some of our other podcasts that we've had so far this series, featuring the likes of Carl Sinclair, Manu Tuolangi and Luke Cowan Dickey. We'll be back next week for business as usual. So all that's left for me to say is a massive thank you to Johnny. Until then, from me and the team, it's goodbye. Goodbye.